This is Formby Podcast. In this podcast, we're back with Joan Rimmer, reading Viking Village, the story of Formby, published in 1973 by Edith Kelly and the Formby Civic Society. It's a ferocious read, but here it's made so accessible by Joan Reading. Viking Village by Edith Kelly, published in 1973. Chapter 12, Formby Fauna, Past and Present, by Gladys Bevan. Birds. Formby is extremely rich in bird life, and we who live in Formby are fortunate indeed to find three distinctly different ecological areas, all within walking distance the mosses, the woodlands, both deciduous and conifer, and the coast, with its long stretch of sand attracting many waders as the tide ebbs and flows, leaving behind a host of mollusks and small crustaceans upon which they feed. Birds of passage rest on our coast when moving south in autumn and north in spring, so that during May or in August, we are likely to hear a wimbrel uttering its seven-note whistle as it makes its way to and from its breeding zone, or to see an Arctic or Pomerine skewer, or maybe a great skewer, harrying the turn at the water's edge as they too move on to suit their needs. On cold winter days, snow bunting flutter in harlequin flight across the dunes, and in summer, the willow warbler sings a sweet cadence in our woods. Here on the dark potato fields of Lancashire, more pink-footed geese winter than anywhere else in Britain, sometimes up to 6,000 feeding at Hosker Moss, Plex Moss, the Withens, the fields off Lunt, and roosting at low tide on Tabor's Bank and the estuary of the Ribble. But if Formby is rich in bird life now, how much richer it must have been in John Ridley's day when, in 1892, chiefly from his late father's notes, he published by private subscription a most fascinating work called Notes on the Bird Life of Formby. Formby is rich in bird life, it is true, but it is not too safe a place for birds. A pomerine skewer met a sad end. It was sighted on the shore by a local vicar who immediately sent to the boathouse and told the men to bring their guns. Wrigley writes, Luckily, the expedition proved successful and we have the bird as a memento of the event. Not so lucky for the skewer. Bitterns, rare in those days and absent now, came in for the gun too. And Wrigley writes, a specimen of this rare bird was killed on Sorda Haze, or Southern Haze, meaning South Moss, on Thursday, January the 21st, 1892, by a Richard Sutton of Moss Farm. Mr John Formby of Formby Hall has another specimen at his home, which was killed many years ago on Formby Moss. In 1891, a grey phalarope met the same fate as any other rare bird along this coast, for it was shot and eventually mounted by a Mr Clark. And in 1892, it is recorded in Birds of Lancashire by F.S. Mitchell that a buff-breasted sandpiper was shot on the banks of the Alt and sent to the Liverpool Museum, along with some snipe. This bird ended in the possession of the Reverend T. Staniforth of Skipton, who submitted the record of this very rare bird to Yarrell's British Birds. Today, although we have lost many bird habitats due to the inevitable encroachment of man from the suburbs and the cities, the pattern of bird movement remains much the same as in Wrigley's day, when his grey geese came to the moss. But today, the wild fowler is probably outnumbered by those who raise binoculars rather than guns at the noisy gaggles moving about on the stubble. But the birds on our coast still have an insidious enemy, oil. And if in 1892, a few rare birds were shot and mounted, 
and eventually fell victim to moth. According to Wrigley, most of his specimens fell to pieces with moth. At least there was no mention of pollution and a beach strewn with dead and dying oil-coated birds, a sight so common today. The oil seabirds washed up on our coast today are chiefly members of the orc family. Guillemots, razorbills and the occasional puffin, although it is not uncommon for the scoter, a winter visitor to our coast, or any of the diving duck. These birds dive into clear water and come up through a patch of oil to become victims of our present-day scourge. Despite present-day science, there is yet little real aid for the birds, who no doubt have preened swallowing a quantity of oil. The side effects of this are kidney trouble, lung infection and intestinal inflammation. No doubt a clogged oil gland and probably a dose of pneumonia through chill and exposure and lack of food. A poor lookout for the oil seabird picked up on our coast. During the winter months, our sandy shore supports flock upon flock of waders, not bar-tailed godwit, sandaling, oyster catcher, grey plover, turnstone in small numbers, red shank, and on passage, the green shank. Curlew come down from the moors to sift the soft sand for their food, and parties of perhaps 30 or 40 snow bunting liven the winter scene as they search for food about the tide line and along the dunes. While out to sea, scoter, scorp, velvet scoter, rather rarely, mallard, which usually rest on the water by day and feed over the moss by night, pintail, and occasionally some eider are all to be seen from time to time. Of the divers, we can watch the red-throated, black-throated and the Great Northern, sometimes swimming fairly close to the shore. Great-crested grebe are fairly common offshore, but the Slavonian, black-necked and red-necked grebe are only occasionally recorded on this coast. An occasional Brent goose is a winter visitor to the shore. Grey lag, along with the pink-footed geese, visit the moss and more rarely, the snow goose is seen mingling with the flocks. White-fronted and lesser white-fronted geese have both been recorded from time to time. North of the shore on the nature reserve are fishermen's path. The sea buckthorn affords much shelter and food for a great many birds. And here, making full use of the coral red berries are missile thrush and field fair song thrush and red wing, blackbird, magpie and jay, which seem to be increasing on the nature reserve. A host of smaller birds take cover in the thickets, chaffinch, bullfinch, greenfinch, goldcrest, and occasionally a firecrest. And for several winters, a great gray shrike has hunted about in the woods and is usually seen at the top end of fisherman's path. Some winters we have an influx of waxwings when we have the pleasure of seeing these attractive birds feeding on berry-bearing berry shrubs and trees. In 1947, the first waxwing I ever saw in my life was feeding on privet berries in my own garden. Influxes of these birds occur when there is a shortage of their food in their own lands of the north. As soon as the days start to lengthen, the background to all the birdsong is that of the lark, and it is true that he is the first bird to sing as the first glimmer of morning light enters the eastern sky. Indeed, as the following notes, taken from the Formby Society Dawn Chorus Outing, show, the lark is actually singing before any discernible light appears in the sky. Dawn Chorus Outing, May the 12th, 1970, time 4am, place, woods at the end of Cambridge Road. 4.10am, larks commenced to sing, 11 minutes before we were aware of any actual light. 4.20, blackbirds and thrushes sing. 4.22, two robins sing. 
4.29, a cock crows, 4.30, an owl hoots, probably before it goes to roost for the day, 4.31, a great tit calls, 4.40, willow warbler and chiff chaff join the chorus, 5 o'clock, the sparrows get out of bed and our watch comes to an end. As well as the skylark, the shorelark is an occasional autumn and winter visitor to our coast, recognised by its pale yellow face and throat and black breastband. The male bird has two feathered black horns and thus this lark is sometimes known as the horned lark. Eight years ago, Formby men set lark traps when thousands of larks were caught as they came down to feed in the fields especially during the winter when the, when the uh, traps would be set in a clearing in the snow and seed spread for the unwary birds. Those caught usually ended up at Liverpool Market, although any still alive were quite often sold as cage birds. By March, the shell duck are here again and seeking disused or even tenanted rabbit holes in which to lay their clutch of creamy white eggs. During the myxomatosis epidemic, shelduck declined on this coast due to the lack of burrows for nesting sites. But now, especially in the Hightown area, these beautiful birds, a link between the geese and the duck, are establishing themselves once more. Later on in the year, about July, flotillas of young shelduck may be seen swimming about the estuary of the Alt in the care of a communal foster parent left behind to look after the creche while the rest of the adult birds fly off to their annual molting ground in the Heligoland Bight. March also brings the chiffchaff, relative of the willow warbler, the latter usually arriving about the second week in April when the sweet cadence of its song is the background to our summer day. March brings the wheat ear too both to our dunes and arable land. Its thrush-like stance, and when in flight, its conspicuous white rump make it easy to recognise in the field. Swallows and house martins arrive too, but unfortunately, many house martins' nests are knocked down from houses almost as soon as they are built. If householders would compromise by erecting dropping board, beneath the nests and allow the martins to get on with the job of rearing their families, it would be a hospitable act towards the bird that has travelled so far and met many hazards simply to rear a family in our land. By mid-April, the whitethroat is singing on the dunes and on the mosses and the sedge warbler chatters its gabbling song, but it is mid-May before the blackcap whistles in the woods and the grasshopper warbler reels its strange song very often on the moss in the range lane area and on the nature conservancy of fishermen's path. By the end of April the turn have arrived on Formby shore and one may see common, arctic, sandwich, rossiat and little turn but they have not come to stay although a few arctic or maybe a pair of common tern may attempt to nest south of the shore, most of them are on their way to their old nesting sites further along the coast, such as Walney Island. Between the two wars, a substantial ternary existed in the Ainsdale Freshfield area, but black-headed gulls eventually displaced most of the terns. Those that were left found it difficult to establish nests because of the increased use of the shore due chiefly to the advent of the motor car with its accompanying batch of weekend trippers to the, to the coast. In 1956, it was noticed by Brigadier White of the Territorial Army at Hightown that two pairs of tern were attempting to nest at the southern part of Formby Shore beneath the dunes confronting the rifle range but they had been disturbed. Brigadier White felt that should the birds return again the following year to this quieter stretch of the shore and consolidate a nesting site, there might be the nucleus of a ternary once again. Thus it came about that after a meeting with the Brigadier White, 
the Natural History Group of the Formby Society and several other naturalists, it was arranged that we should hold permits allowing us to birdwatch on land used in that area by the army. The army, it seemed, were quite often troubled with trespassers on their land, so no doubt the fact that we were keeping a lookout for stray gangs of lads roaming the dunes and the foreshore served a dual purpose. Those offering their help and issued with permits were Mr R Smith, Mr C Felton, Mr E Richards, Mr W H Bevan, Mrs G Bevan, Mr J McGregor, Mr F Beardwood, Miss J Mudie, Mr H Diaz, Mr L Fennerty and Mr M Crosby. Thus we were all set for Operation Turn. Towards the end of April 1957, a pair of common turn were observed at the water's edge at the southern part of Formby Shore, and after a few days, they were taking an interest in a small stretch of shingle beneath the dunes. A few days later, a pair of Arctic turn flew in, and by June the 2nd, each pair had made a scrape and, and laid eggs. Later on in the week, it was discovered that the nest of the Arctic tern contained a small red rubber ball. It would be difficult to surmise just how this got in amongst the two mottled eggs. The red ball was removed by one of the watchers so that the nest would not be so conspicuous. But despite the almost constant watch, it was discovered on June the 17th that both nests had been robbed, whether by human hand or by some bird predator it would be impossible to say. It might be of interest to add here that during our patrol of the shore, prior to the term's arrival, we met a local beachcomber who, when asked if he had seen any of the turn, replied, No, but I eat Shrike's eggs. Shrike is a local name for the turn. We did our best to dissuade him from this extremely bad habit, but it seemed more than likely that he would continue to eat Shrike's eggs whenever the opportunity arose. After the turn's nests had been robbed, we discovered that they had laid again further along the shore. But this time, there were three nests, two of common turn and one arctic, arctic with one egg in each. But on June the 26th, one of the nests had again been robbed. The main worry, however, was the fact that when the turn had made their second scrapes, these were below high water mark, and it seemed very likely that nests and eggs would perish on the 29 foot tides of the 29th and 30th of the month. Alas, on June the 29th, our fears were realized and the devastating high tide, together with an inshore wind, had swept away all sign of the terns' nests and their eggs, leaving only a depressing debris and the sound of the terns' strident calls as they hovered over the dunes. Note the record of numbers of nests at the Ainsdale Freshfield Turnery. Common Turn, 1920, 300 pairs. 1936, 100 pairs. 1940, 24 pairs. 1941, 17 pairs and the Arctic Turn, 1920, 24 pairs, 1941, three pairs. Black-headed gulls and Ainsdale Freshfield, 1930 to 1935, some 500 nests and now there are none. A suggested reason for this decline is that the silting up of the offshore channels and steady increase of pollution has reduced the supply of sand eels, the black-headed gold staple diet. About May the 7th, the swifts arrive in Formby, screaming their way through the skies like hordes of happy schoolchildren let out to play. The spotted flycatcher, in search of flies, flits from its vantage point, usually near some ivy-clad trees in which it builds its nest. Goldcrests sing their needle-fine song in the pine woods, and the great spotted woodpecker's drumming vibrates through the woods. If one is lucky, one may see the tree creeper, 
a small, unobtrusively marked bird working in a zigzag fashion up the trunk of a tree in search of insects. And then, with a high-pitched note, it suddenly flies to the foot of another tree and starts the whole performance all over again. But this is not a common bird in Formby. Blue tits, coal tits and great tits are all very much in evidence, many of them cashing in on all the tidbits in the form of nuts supplied to the squirrels on the Nat National Trust Squirrel Reserve at Victoria Road. Long tail tits are usually seen in winter parties, but they have occasionally nested in the district. Both willow and marsh tit may be seen over the moss and occasionally on the nature reserve. On the dunes and over the moss, the reed bunting simple song is heard. The yellowhammer complains about his little bit of bread, but no cheese. Although he soon may complain about a little bit of lane, but no hedge, because our hedge lanes are rapidly vanishing. And the yellowhammer is a bird of the hedgerow. The corn bunting holds its own, singing its jangle song from some telegraph wire or high post. Goldfinches have increased in the area over the past six years. Several pairs of windchat nest about the dunes and some stone chats too, mostly in the high town area. Red starts are chiefly seen on passage. Greenfinches with their canary-like song are common in Formby and linnets are a feature of the dunes and the moss, favouring gorse bushes in which to build their nests. Red poles and siskins perform ac acrobatics in the alders of Fisherman's Path, and the wren gives forth its persistent boisterous song. This bird is increasing in numbers, like the goldcrest and the lapwing after the prolonged frost of 1959 when many perished. Bullfinches are not common, although they are sometimes seen on the nature reserve and once an exhausted fledgling was brought to me from the Range Lane area, but only recently I watched a female bird drinking from a puddle in Freshfield Road. The ringed plover is always in evidence on the foreshore during the summer months, and some of them do manage to nest behind the dunes towards Hightown and in the Freshfield Ainsdale area, feigning injury if their nest or their young are approached. Pied wagtails are a feature of Formby's arable land and Duke Street Park Bowling Green. Grey and yellow wagtails are occasional visitors. The grey more often during the winter months and the yellow during the autumn on passage. Snipe too are a feature of both moss and dunes. They can be recognised by their erratic flight and the drumming noise of the male bird as he circles around high above his nesting site. This sound is created by the fanning out of the tail feathers in flight, causing the wind to vibrate through the barbs. During the autumn and winter months, the curlew come down from the moors where they have bred to sift the soft mud flats of our shores for worms and small crustaceans. But they are off at our slightest approach, uttering their melancholy cry. One of Formby's summer visitors, the turtle dove, is now completely outnumbered by the collared dove, the bird that has so rapidly colonised this country since 1955. One pair arrived in Cromer in the April of that year, frequenting a small garden and rearing two young. Previously, the bird was restricted to Istanbul, Albania, Bulgaria and Yugoslavia. According to the British Birds magazine, it progressed initially by way of the Danube. Coloured doves arrived in Hungary in 1932, Czechoslovakia in 1936, Austria in 1938 and Germany in 1943. A coloured dove was reported in Lincolnshire in 1952. This bird remained in the area for six years but never succeeded in finding a mate. It was in 1961 that we had the first collared doves to be recorded in Lancashire, when a pair were co constantly seen in the vicarage garden of Ormskirk Parish Church. And I shall never forget travelling out to Ormskirk on the first available bus 
about 6.45am with a friend to get a glimpse of this wonderful new bird. It was a wretched morning, cold and pouring with rain, and we stood about in the vicarage grounds, wet through and disconsolate, not having caught a glimpse of the bird, nor heard its voice. Ten days later, it was uttering its monotonous call from almost every wood in Formby, and ten years later, although still on the protected list, it is one of our problem birds, cashing in wherever there are poultry farms or other pigeons, and breeding at the rate of four nests in a season, each containing a clutch of two eggs. Birds of prey in Formby, as everywhere else, are on the decrease owing to the number of causes, the use of pesticides and a lack of suitable breeding sites. But the tawny owl and the kestrel hold their own and are certainly the two commonest birds of prey in this area. Only a few pairs of barn owls rest in the district and the long-eared owls are certainly on the decline. At one time, they were quite a feature of our local pine woods. Sparrowhawks are rarely seen, but merlins and the short-eared owl quarter the dunes and the moss during the winter months. Both marsh and hen harrier are occasionally seen on the moss, and sometimes the peregrine falcon stoops at pigeons and shorebirds along the coast, while the little owl holds its own too, hunting by night as well as by day. 100 years ago, or maybe more, according to all accounts, quite a large heronry existed at Formby Hall, the ancestral home of the Formby family. But according to information I received in a letter from the late Mr. J.F.L. Formby, one day a great company of rooks arrived and waged war upon the herons. The rooks won the day and took over the heronry until some time during the Second World War, when Mr and Mrs Formby were away from the hall for a period and some contractors' men working on huts nearby chased away the rooks. By what means they were chased away, Mr Formby did not say, but this apparently is the history of the rise and fall of the heronry and of the rookery too. Now only an occasional heron visits the pond in the grounds of Formby Hall. Another interesting feature of the bird life at Formby Hall is the ancient dovecot or pigeon tower built of brick and measuring about 12 feet in diameter and approximately 18 feet in height. The interior is said to contain a thousand pigeon holes so it would accommodate a great many nesting pairs. The roof of this strange building forms an apex in which there is a hole from which the birds might come and go. Of later years, the only occupants of the dovecot have been a pair of barn owls. The nearest heronry now is at Innsblundel, where sometimes up to four or five nests are built. The heronry at Scaresbrick declined after the felling of many trees in Dam Wood. Jackdaws are not a common sight in Formby, but I have seen a colony at the back of Formby Hall. A jackdaw, which I keep as a pet, which had obviously been someone's hand-reared bird, got itself into trouble by flying around the district, unpegging the washing from the lines. Eventually, a much-provoked housewife managed to catch the bird in a polythene bucket, and it ended in my care. He is too dangerous a bird ever to consider releasing because despite his coy expression and vocal invitation to come on, come on, his one ambition in life is to bore a hole in someone's hand with that evil strong black bill or to fly onto someone's head with the intention of pulling the hair or pecking the ear. Despite all this, however, Jacko holds a place of affection in our hearts. He now has a mate, a wild jackdaw with deformed wings, to whom he solicitously feeds his bread and milk. Carrion crows are not much very are not very much in evidence either, although a pair frequented woods at Firwood Alexandra Road during the past three years. The local council tips, however, attract most scavenging scavenging birds, and at Broad Lane and Plex Moss. Rooks, jackdaws and crows, including the hooded crow, 
are usually to be seen. With them are gulls of every description, amongst them a few rarities, such as the glaucus gull and an occasional Iceland gull, both very white gulls. These birds come in from outlying districts like traders to a fair. During the last few years, magpies have increased considerably in the district and whereas they were previously quite rare on the shore side of the line, they are now a common feature of the dunes, both south of the shore and on the nature reserve. Rookeries are now absent in Formby, although some of us may remember the rookery at Victoria Road, Freshfield, before the Second World War, and those at Grange Farm, Hightown, and at Altca. Now the nearest rookery is at Row Lane, Southport. Meandering sluggishly across the moss and finally joining the murky waters of the River Alt, the Downholland Brook supports its complement of birds. Rafts of teal crick crick their chirruping notes as they feed in flocks on the water, while moorhens and coots are common. At times there is the rare sight of a wandering kingfisher flashing in unbelievable brilliance along the narrow brook. Recently, a kingfisher was found lying in the forecourt of Woodward's Motorworks on Altca Road, having either flown into some wires or been hit by a car. Fortunately, the bird recovered and was released the following day near the Downholland Brook. Towards the end of August and during September, Formby Shore becomes the haunt of many birds, for this is the time of interchange. Summer visitors moving out towards their more southerly winter feeding quarters and northern birds moving in to their winter feeding quarters along the coast of Great Britain. It is at this time that we can possibly see birds of the same species with some in winter plumage and others still in summer dress. Clouds of knot are a winter feature of our sandy shore. These grey blackbird sized waders packed closely together at the ebb tide, looking for all the world like a grey moving carpet at the water's edge. During the 1880s, many of these birds were shot. It is recorded that half a cartload would be taken away at a single tide. Grey plovers too joined the waders, recognised by their run-stop walk and the black armpit revealed as they rise in flight. Golden plovers join the lapwing or green plover on the fields, their liquid whistling bringing something of the loneliness of the moorlands where they breed. Bartail godwits probe the soft sand with their long straight bill and usually stand on the seaward side of the vast flocks of mixed waders on the shore. Sandaling, the whitest of the waders, busily run around like scraps of blown foam and dunlin, only slightly smaller than the starling, than the starling-sized sandling, hurry along too, continuously on the search for food. Oyster catchers call cleep cleep as they fly in to join the feeding flocks, and during August and September, vast flocks of tern pass through on their way via Spain and Portugal to a warmer clime. Persistent gale force winds and freak storms have some phenomenal results when birds are caught up within them and between September and December of the year 1952 there occurred a severe wreck of leeches fork-tailed petrels, small swallow-like birds recognised by a white rump and deeply forked tail. These birds were caught up while on passage movement by persistently strong westerly winds and large numbers perished or drifted along the Lancashire coast and were washed ashore. Between Formby and the Ribble Estuary, 66 birds were found dead. Some of the birds were blown inland as far as Blackburn and Clitheroe, but the greatest number occurred in Liverpool Bay, where at one time roughly a thousand birds were observed feeding on the wing and many more drift birds washed ashore. Similarly, there occurred a starling wreck in January 1959 when hundreds of dead starlings were washed up along the coast, having been caught up in thick fog and smog while en route across the Mersey to their roost at Speak. These unfortunate birds were forced down upon the water and oiled. 
Food is the main factor in all bird movement. Before Formby's famous asparagus reached its peak of popularity, both at home and abroad, the missile thrush was not a common sight in Formby, but attracted by the red berries of the asparagus fern, the bird found an abundant food supply and its numbers in the district steadily increased. In the same way, the movement of the geese, a typical winter feature of this area, is due to the wide cultivation of the potato in southwest Lancashire, the birds coming in from their breeding grounds in the tundras of Iceland and Scandinavia to feed on any rotting potatoes on our local fields. The fact that these fields are chiefly unhedged is an added security for the geese, who have a wary eye and always an expert sentinel on guard to give the alarm at the first sign of a wild fowler with his gun. Forby has its share of rarities, although some are perhaps not quite so rare as officially accepted in previous years. There are now many more experienced bird watchers making regular accurate reports over a wide area, and thus certain birds are more frequently recorded than they were in the past. The first Lancashire record for the bee eater occurred in 1946, when two birds appeared in an Ainsdale garden and frequented the area from October until November, feeding upon hive bees. Three gardens in the area contained hives. The bee eater is a colourful bird with yellow throat, blue breast feathers and a chestnut head. Also, chestnut and yellow upper parts. It is a very rare summer visitor from the Mediterranean countries. A roller, yet another colourful blue and chestnut bird, was recorded at Freshfield in 1965. The hoopoe, unmistakable with its erect black-tipped crest, striking black and white wing pattern and pinkish plumage, is a fairly frequent autumn migrant, both at Formby and Hightown. In 1963, a rose-coloured starling, or rosy pasta, frequented a friend's garden at her home near Formby Shore, and a photograph was taken of the bird feeding at her bird table. A rose-coloured starling reported at Hilbury Island a week or so previously is thought to have been the same bird, and whereas it must be accepted that some of these rare birds are aviary escapes, it is thought that this was probably a wild bird. My greatest thrill was watching the spoonbills at Ainsdale Shore in the October of 1958, when Mr Eric Hardy, the Liverpool naturalist, kindly telephoned me to say that four of these birds had been recognised by two members of the Merseyside naturalists as the birds settled to be... <coughs> I'll just stop there and start again at the beginning of the, of the paragraph. <coughs> <clears throat> My greatest thrill was watching the spoonbills at Ainsdale Shore in the October of 1958 when Mr Eric Hardy, the Liverpool naturalist, kindly telephoned me to say that four of these birds had been recognised by two members of the Merseyside naturalists as the birds settled to roost. This was on October the 9th, but it was not until the 13th that I got my first glimpse of the four birds feeding at the ebb tide at Freshfield. Just in time too, for the following day, the spoonbills had gone. In November and December of 1958, obviously a good year for rarities, an American blue snow goose appeared with the pink-footed geese on our local mosses and this was reckoned to be the first record of this bird in Lancashire. Either lesser or greater snow geese, it is difficult to distinguish them in the field, are now fairly regularly seen feeding with the pink-footed geese, and it was my pleasure this year, 1972, to watch one feeding on the stubble fields off Hightown. The Avocet is occasionally recorded, as recently as April 1971, one was recorded at Hightown by the Merseyside naturalists. Crossbills, winter visitors and passage migrants, occasionally invade the pine woods, stripping the cones of the seed. 
The grey phalarope is now recorded quite frequently both at Formby and at Hightown. On July the 2nd, 1957, a yellow bird seen by H. Palin of Formby, which had black wings, thickish bill and flute-like call note, and which he observed in the woods off Alexandra Road, was accepted by Mr. Eric Hardy as a golden oriole. More recently, this rare vagrant has been reported at Hightown and Mere Brow by members of the Merseyside Naturalists. But rarities come and go, creating but a short period of joy for the bird watcher and the characteristic features of Formby's bird life are the background chorus of larks high above the dunes, the sweet cadent song of the willow warbler during the summer months, the strident call of the gulls at the water's edge, and last but not least, those ambassadors of winter, the pink-footed geese with their wild clamour as they wing their way across the brown potato fields. <coughs> Mammals. The red squirrel. The British red squirrel is certainly one of Formby's most interesting mammals and a popular weekend outing over the last few years has been to take the children to feed the squirrels at the Squirrel Reserve on the National Trust land off Victoria Road. The squirrels there must surely be the best fed in Great Britain. So well fed are they indeed that there is hardly need for them to hibernate during the winter months, while in other parts of Britain food might be in short supply. Not that squirrels ever hibernate completely, they merely take short naps and stir from their drays on fine winter days to take a look around and perchance to remember where last autumn they had hidden those nuts. Squirrels, however, are reckoned to have notoriously bad memories and it is doubtful if they ever find their own stores, although with a bit of luck they might stumble upon their neighbours. The red squirrel, however, did not always live in Formby, not until 1942, when the late Mr Gledhill of Argamiel's Road, Freshfield, who kept aviaries, decided that he would like to keep some squirrels and eventually acquired several pairs, which he kept in an enclosure at the bottom of the garden. However, Mr Gledhill had hardly had the squirrels one week when they all escaped. Mrs Gledhill tells me, that after this happened, there was a great commotion in the district and for the following nine days, the telephone hardly ceased ringing. One was discovered in someone's pantry enjoying the Sunday joint, a very precious commodity during that Second World War year of 1942. But the squirrels were wary and never caught, although Mrs E. Mortley tells me that at that time, one was constantly seen in the garden of the late Dr Wilson of Gore's Lane. Eventually the squirrels settled in the pine woods where they successfully bred and Formby is the richer for the fact that Mr Gledhill's squirrels escaped from their cage at the bottom of the garden. Today roughly 50 pairs of squirrels nest in the pine woods off Victoria Road but they also nest in smaller numbers south of Formby Shore in woods off Lifeboat Road Albert Road and in the grounds of Firwood and many other gardens. The grey squirrel is absent from Formby, which is rather a good thing, for it is inclined to displace our native red squirrel and is far more destructive to young trees. Foxes. Foxes have certainly increased in the district over the past 20 years but I have yet to hear of any real wanton destruction caused by these much maligned and very beautiful creatures. In fact, a very sociable fox visited the garden at Firwood, the home of the late Mr C. E. Torrey. This fox appeared each day when food was put out for the squirrels and birds and enjoyed the tidbits alongside his fellow creatures of the woods, who apparently tolerated his presence without undue alarm. Fairly recently, an exhausted fox was brought to my care. The creature arrived curled up in a butcher boy's basket, having been found by the lad lying limply beneath a hedge in Wicks Lane. The reason for the creature's exhaustion would be hard to define, 
He was either ill or had been run to a standstill. I placed the fox in an old rabbit hutch, spoon-fed him on warm bread and milk, wrapped him in an old jacket and gave him a hot water bottle. By the evening, he was well enough to sit up and calmly gaze around at us. By next morning, he had evidently completely recovered and felt well enough to escape. Before he left, he could have breakfasted upon our many pet rabbits or pigeons, for if he could chew his way out of the cage, he would certainly chew his way into one. But he had gone his way in peace and we wished him well. That foxes are increasing on the nature reserve is very evident, but without a doubt there is sufficient food for them. Rabbits, rats, weakly birds and half-dead birds washed up on the tide line and probably the occasional squirrel support the fox population without the creatures having to become a nuisance by foraging nearer to our homes and to the farms for their food. In fact, there is no doubt that the fox helps to keep the balance of nature fairly well. Rabbits and hares, etc. Rabbits were always plentiful on both the dunes and arable land and are now increasing after the epidemic of myxomatosis. After their decline at that time, there was a noticeable increase of hares in the district. Hares being of a different genus to the rabbit were not affected by the disease. Stoats and weasels both take their toll of rabbits and hares in the district. Also of ground nesting birds such as partridges and pheasants. Hedgehogs and moles are common. The brown rat is common everywhere, but both black and brown rat are to be found on the dunes. House mice, long-tailed field mice, short-tailed voles, bank voles and the water vole, so wrongfully named a water rat, for this creature is charming and harmless, being purely vegetarian. They are all to be found. Also, the common pygmy and water shrew. I'm sorry, I'll do that little... <coughs> I'll do that last chapter just again. Hedgehogs and moles are common. The brown rat is common everywhere, but both black and brown rat are to be found on the dunes. House mice, long-tailed field mice, short-tailed voles, bank voles, and the water vole, so wrongfully named a water rat, for this creature is charming and harmless, being purely vegetarian, are all to be found. Also the common, pygmy, and water, water shrew. Bats. Pipistrel and long-eared bats are the kind most likely to be found in Formby. A long-eared bat, brought to my care after being found with a damaged wing, lived for a while quite happily on bread and milk. But as there seemed very little future for a bat with a damaged wing, it was eventually put to sleep. Set with wings outspread and preserved for all to see, suspended in a large jar of formaldehyde. While on the subject of bats, one of my sons, when about 14 years of age, decided that his one desire in life was that he and his friend should spend a night in St Luke's churchyard. Therefore, to save some psychiatrist at some distant date, coming to the conclusion that if only my son had in his youth spent one night in a churchyard, life would have been less frustrating, we packed him some sandwiches, filled a flask of tea and sent him on his way. About six o'clock next morning, a rather cold and shiver shivery youth returned home. He had not seen any spooks, spooks, if that had been the idea of the excursion, but at least he knew where a great many of Formby's bats spent the hours of daylight. For at dawn, he related, they all flew across the churchyard like a black cloud straight into the church porch, where they folded their dusky wings and hung themselves up to sleep. Amphibians and reptiles. Characteristic of Formby's slacks and shore gutters are the noisy natterjack toads, often facetiously referred to as the Lancashire nightingales. In fact, with a westerly wind, the natterjack toads in the breeding season can be heard a mile and a half inland from the slacks. Unfortunately, these pale green toads, recognised by the yellow stripe along the back, are not so abundant as they were, due no doubt to the increased building in the district. 
and the consequent draining of the land so that the slacks are not the constantly wet places that they used to be, although the Nature Conservancy are attempting to combat this problem by the creation of artificial ponds. The common toad is quite widely distributed in the district. Formby is also the home of the rare little sand lizard, but this too is in jeopardy, for it is avidly sought for sale in pet shops. At weekends, youngsters who have picked them up on the dunes carry them home undaunted by the fact that the lizard has probably shed its tail, either through fright or rough handling, and the poor creature probably ends up in the scullery of some city home where it is no doubt where it no doubt dies a rather sad death. The common lizard is the feature of Forby too, but is larger and darker than the sand lizard. Both have the habit of shedding their tails if in danger. It is thought to be a means of distracting the enemy while the lizard escapes. Newts are also a feature of the slacks and ponds, where both smooth and crested newts are to be found. Lepidoptera. Throughout the years, Forby has been an interesting area for the entomologist. And even today, despite the felling of trees, insecticides, and the fact that many good moth and butterfly habitats have been sadly reduced by the builder's bulldozer, it is still the haunt of many species of interest to the keen naturalist, the list of which would run into hundreds. Formby Podcast is an independent production. It comes to you free. If you'd like us to tell your story, or you know of a story, contact us at formbypodcast at gmail.com. See you next time.